Hey, it's Andrew Morgan, host of the NOMCAST, the Netflix original movie podcast. Each week we preview and review the biggest Netflix original movies with special guests from the film industry, the music industry, comedians, and of course our fellow critics and podcasters. The NOMCAST is available on nomcastpod.com or wherever you get your podcasts on the socials at nomcastpod and is a part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Attention culture consumers. Join me, the queen of queries, Sarah O'Connor, and my band of nerdy knights. Colleen McMillan. Flo Siegel. And Anders Drew. On Bohemian Geek Studies, where we take extremely dorky dives into our favorite fandoms, especially that Star Wars galaxy far, far away. Listen each week as we examine the stories that mean so much to us. Bohemian Geek Studies is available wherever you get your podcasts and is proudly part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Forgotten Entertainment presents on the QT, where uh, myself, I'm John, and I'm Lloyd, where we talk about the films, the 10 films uh, of the Quentin Tarantino filmography. Quentin Tarantino, the writer director. We're talking, of course, about his directed films only. We're not talking about stuff like True Romance and Natural Born Killer stuff he wrote. But you've been with us the last couple of weeks. You know how this goes. Uh, so Lloyd and I are here. We have a special guest every week. We uh, we we put all of our buddies and pals names in a hat pulled them out boom 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 and this week for kill bill volume one that's right volume one uh and re- before we introduce our guest i do want to say something real quick because i've gotten a lot of feedback on this one thing from our friends and listeners they keep saying you're doing the 10 movies of, of tarantino but wait kill bill is only one movie here's the definitive answer which i never even thought about before at the very beginning of kill bill volume two it, it or kill bill volume one pardon me it is introduced as the fourth film from Quentin Tarantino. So no matter how everybody looked at it at one point, it was supposed to be one movie. He considers it his fourth film. So this is two different films and it will be rated justly. And we will have two different guests to talk about these two films. So that's right. Our buddy, Sean McLaughlin, AKA Shawnee Mac, AKA the Glock senior uh, is here with us. Sean is a staff writer for horrornewsnetwork.net, and he has been on our uh, other podcast, Pine of Comics. You can find us over at pineofcomics.com uh, uh, many times. And, uh, and Sean picked or got picked for Kill Bill Van 1. Sean, how's everything going? How are you doing, man? Pretty good. Thank, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It's always a, it's always a laugh when I'm on. Oh, yeah. yeah. We always, <laughs> we, are great. We always have a good time with you. We always have a good time. Yeah. Now, we've been asking all of our guests your Tarantino, I guess, appreciation. Big fan, little fan, don't care. Where are you at with this? 
Um, I'm, I mean, not a big fan. I'm definitely a fan of his. I, I do have some issues with him as well, but I, I would say he, he is one of those guys that's not afraid to take risks. And I, I got to respect that. And a lot of times they work. So, you know, I would say a medium fan. Okay. All right. All right. Right in the middle, right in the middle. All right. Now the next thing we kind of do, I want to go around and kind of gauge this is, so we're talking kill bill volume one. And we'll get into all the little things about it in a minute. But let's talk our personal history with this movie. Manster, Lloyd, did you see this in the theaters? Were you aware of this when it came out? Did you care about it when it came out? Where were you at? This is uh, around the time where I stopped going to the theater for his movies and, you know, just waiting for DVDs and stuff like that. So, no, I didn't see this in the theater. Um, Not that I wasn't excited for it, but yeah, it's just what it was at that time. All right. We have to also mention our, you know, our last show was the Jackie Brown show. You know, we talked about Jackie Brown with uh, Melissa Ouellette. And it's very important to point out that from 1997 to 2003, nothing came out. Right. So Jackie Brown comes out as his third film. You know, we talked about how it was a little bit different because it was based on a pre-existing property as opposed to something original. And then like for what, that's six years, nothing. Uh, That's more than six years. Nothing comes out um, because he's focusing so heavily on these, these two kill bill films, which again, at one point was supposed to be one long film. Um, So it's interesting when, you know, someone who in 1992, 1994 and 1997 comes out with, you know, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, you know, he's, he's hitting really quickly. And then all of a sudden he goes Chinese democracy on us and we don't hear from him, you know, for, for a long time. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I saw this in the theaters and I could distinctly remember the feeling in the theater was that we were watching something that like you really haven't seen before his first three movies, you know, no matter how good they are, they're all Los Angeles based crime thrillers. You know, if you really want to get down to the end of it. And now all of a sudden we're in the middle of a, like a seventies era grindhouse slash, you know, martial arts revenge picture. And it, it's it's very stylized, uh, even more so than the others. It's it's in your face. Uh, it, it's it's kind of crazy. I, I remember I remember people like cheering in parts. I remember people like kind of like hearing people around like, what is going on here? You know, it, it, I don't know if it caught on everybody at the time. Sean, did you see this in the theater? Do you remember your first viewing? I, I did see it in the theater. Yeah. And I remember there, there was quite a buzz around this when it was coming out. I remember the the TV spots. uh specifically i probably should have rewatched them on youtube just to jog my memory but i do remember them showing the plane you know landing in in tokyo there and then the the graphic i think it said it you know in 2003 uma thurman will kill bill (laughs) yes yeah i don't know if you remember that but it was just one word after another like it was very direct and yeah there was a sense of you know this is great another tarantino movie but what the hell is this thing about like (laughs) what we were seeing samurai fights in the the spot and you know and then we're seeing just you know going head to head with uh with with other people busting their heads open and it's just like what what the hell's going on here but that that's kind of what made the you know there's a mystique around this film just for that reason yeah what what are we going to watch you know yeah, definitely. It's it's not it's not your run of the mill film. Now, now, Lloyd, before we start getting into all all of the stuff we get into, can you give the audience out there a, a bumper sticker on this one, and uh, and bumper sticker just volume one? Because again, we're we're gonna probably little bits and pieces of volume two will pop up here, but let's just go with what volume one entails. Right. I'm trying to stay away from volume two in all of my notes here. After awakening from a four year coma, a former assassin exacts her revenge on the team of assassins who betrayed her. That's very succinct. And that's very true. And, you know, again, I I guess the comparisons are going to have to happen uh, a little bit. I I think 
volume one is certainly the more direct of the two movies. Um, it moves faster, I think. And uh, it, it might, it, I guess you could say it contains more of the action beats of the two films mm. um, because this thing, you know, literally a, a lot, you know, the, the ending of it is a 25 minute long action scene just about. Um, Honestly, I haven't ever even watched rewatched kill bill Two. Ah, so I've, I've seen kill bill one a few times. I've certainly seen one more than two, but I've seen two a couple times. Sean, have you, are you lopsided? Yeah. Do you watch one more? Same thing. I've, I've seen one more than I've seen two. I've seen two, uh, two a couple times. Yeah. I do think one is the superior one. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yep. Yep. I'm not going to disagree with that. So Kill Bill Volume One uh, comes out uh, on October 10th, 2003. October 10th for uh, for all of you out there that uh, that might want to wish my wife a happy birthday. That's my wife's birthday. <laughs> so uh, and and Brett Favre as well. So if you want to wish Brett Favre a happy birthday, you could do that too. Uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, um, based on characters created by Q and U. Q and U. Q and U. Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman. Essentially, on the set of Pulp Fiction, they just started spitballing this thing together. They created the character of the bride. Okay, that's that's Uma Thurman's character in this film. And they came up with this, you know, the character. And then Tarantino started, hey, you know, I've always wanted to do like martial arts films. I've always wanted to do kind of like a revenge thriller. Let's let's come up with a story and put this in there. So they kind of created that together. The entirety of Kill Bill um, was filmed in Japan, China. Mexico, L.A., Austin, Texas, um, from January 17th, 2002 to March 3rd of 2003. This one is mostly um, filmed in L.A., Mexico and, uh, and Japan, uh, China and uh, I'm sorry, uh, L.A. Yeah, there is Mexico in this one, too. Uh, China shows up in the next one. Lloyd, let's get into the let, let's do the cast right off the bat. Let's talk cast before we get too far into anything else. So it starts out with Uma Thurman as the bride. Uh, her code name is Black Mamba from the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. Uh, basically, she's the deadliest woman in the world, and she seeks revenge on, like I said, all those all those vipers that basically massacred everyone at her wedding party. Yep. And as we talk a lot about on these, we've talked about them so far on all of these episodes. Is that the the kind of string that goes along with all these Tarantino movies is that nobody is a really good character in any of them. And again, you know, the, the bride has been wronged, you know, uh, put in a coma, terrible things done to her while in a coma, you know, but in the end, let's not forget what you just said. She was an assassin too. Again, we're not looking at it like a white hat. We're looking at like a bad person that, uh, that now had a comeuppance and is now coming out for revenge that theme just keeps popping up. There's no one good in these movies. There's no real good character. You're rooting for the bride. Right. But that's only because you've never seen the stuff that maybe she's done. To right. People. We don't know what she's done. What caused this massacre? You know? Right. Right. We don't find that out. Next, we have Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii, uh, codenamed Cottonmouth. She uh, has basically become the leader of the Japanese Yakuza. Uh, she and the bride once had a close relationship. She is the bride's first target but shown second chronologically in the movie. Again, back to Tarantino motifs. We're going, we're jumping around in time a little bit. Now, Sean, I got a very important question for you um, because I want to know if, if she fulfills this for you as well. I realize every time I see this movie that Lucy Lou fulfills a very strange, I guess I, I, it's the word isn't kink, but attraction that I never knew I had before. <laughs> that I don't even know if he really exists. Otherwise, Asian girls with freckles—is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> and why do I love it so much? I completely agree with you. Um, she does fulfill something that I knew I had. I think she's blazingly hot. 
Yeah. But you're right. Those close-ups of her, um, you see the freckles. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's, it's rare. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. No, you know, there's a couple things with her, right? She's gorgeous, but there's a couple little things about her face that are endearing to me. The freckles, and if you pay attention in certain scenes and close-ups, her one of her eyes is just slightly off a little bit, like maybe a little, a little bit crossed, t- tiny bit. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I mean, yeah. it's endearing. She's, man, she's super cute. That's she's what beautiful. I love most about, you know, beautiful people. They, they, they just have something weird about them that, that makes them, you know, really unique. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if like, unfortunately, I don't want to say this, but if I were to die this week and you were to, um, to, uh, to check my browser history, you would definitely find Lucy Lou freckles because, <laughs> because I, I wanted nice. to kind of see if there was, and there are, there's, there's like tons of pictures of close-ups of her face because it is, it's odd. It's odd. And it's, it's endearing. All right, Nancy, who's next? David Carradine as bill also known as snake charmer, former leader of those deadly vipers, apparently the bride's former lover and the father of her daughter, according to what she says as he uh, shoots her in the head. He's basically an unseen character uh, in this film. That's about it. That, we don't know a whole lot about him. Role originally written for, did you read who that was written yeah, for? Yeah, for Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty. And he said no, but he told Tarantino, you should look at, uh, you should look at um, Carradine. I, Carradine, yeah. I guess, I guess at one point, Kevin Costner was also offered the role but declined and made uh, open range. I, I've a got a whole movie. bunch of other names. Uh, Want to hear some of them? Absolutely. Jack Nicholson, Kurt Russell, Mickey Rourke, and Burt Reynolds apparently all passed on playing Bill. I could almost see any of them too. Burt Reynolds, maybe not, but I could yeah, see, not Bert. I, I could see Kurt Russell. I could see, I could see a lot of David Carradine turns out to be perfect. His voice, right. He's got, a, there's a quality about him, not to mention, you know, when you get down to it, the type of, material he was known for yeah the kung fu show kung fu show and martial arts martial arts that kind of thing it works out really well yeah i was gonna say he he's the type of guy tarantino turns around like travolta been out of the spotlight for a while former big star a role like this is what you know puts him back in the spotlight this is almost made for for caradine's yeah pretty funny that uh tarantino didn't look his way first yeah you're right sean yeah, because he usually has a really good eye for who he wants in a role right away. Yep. Uh, by the way, he died in 2009 of causes. <laughs> it was causes. All right. <laughs> it was causes. All right. <laughs> yeah, damn causes. Yeah. Look it up. If you don't know what we're talking about, because we don't have enough time to get into that. Next, we have Vivica A. Fox as Vernita Green, code name Copperhead. And basically, she's become a homemaker and mother. Um you know, just kind of living in the suburbs, got a perfect little suburban house there. Uh, she's the bride's second target, but the first one in the film. Yeah, she fulfills another one of my niches. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can go, we can move past that now. The, but yeah, the suburban mom. <laughs> the, so, yeah, the, yeah, the suburban mom niche. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll add this one in. You do see him briefly. Michael Madsen as Bud, codename Sidewinder. He is at the wedding massacre when, when they do show him uh you know because it's like kind of like the shot of the what is it the deadly international viper assassin squad right the divas i yeah. think is what they're called uh when, when they do show them in the scene where after they you know they they attempt to murder the bride he's the only male and he's wearing the same suit it seems like he wears in reservoir dogs right that's something i'll, I'll get into with my little list of Tarantinoisms. perfect and his yeah. eyebrows are in the house yeah, <laughs> trademark eyebrows. No. Excellent. <laughs> then we have Daryl Hannah as Ellie Driver, the California mountain snake, 
another former Viper. And she ain't whistling Dixie, but she's whistling something else. That's right. Uh, and then we have Julie Dreyfus, not Julia Louis Dreyfus, as Sophie Fatal. That is Oren's lawyer, confidant, uh, second lieutenant, I guess. Uh, also a former protege of Bill. And she was present at the massacre as well. One of my favorite scenes in the whole movie, or just one of my favorite like little lines is after, you know, jumping ahead, after the bride wipes out everybody in the House of Blue Leaves and tells the survivors to leave. And she goes, right. except for you, Sophie, you stay put. I love that. Yeah, you know, and the crazy part is, is she does. <laughs> like, she does, you know, yeah. she, The bride goes off into the back, like, lot to fight Oranishi. And apparently, fucking Sophie doesn't try to leave. She's so afraid. <laughs> what else does she say? You can all leave, but leave your limbs. Like, those are mine or something. Yeah, like yeah, leave your limbs. They belong to me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, then we got Sunny Chiba as Hattori Hanzo. A uh, sushi, uh, sushi. Wow, I can't say that today. That's a tough one. A sushi chef and long retired master swordsmith who uh, basically agrees to craft her a sword after he's vowed an oath not to do that for like the last 28 years. He also he's fantastic. Um, you can go more scene. into him, yeah. you know, his career. Yeah. He has the great line, like maybe the best line in the whole movie after he creates the sword and he says, you know, if you meet God on your journey, God will be cut. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Line. All right, a few more here. Shiaki Kuriyama as Gogo Yabari, the basically Oren's sadistic schoolgirl bodyguard. She's she's fun. <laughs> Chief of those. Does she uh, scratch an itch for you, John, at all? Uh, the, 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 no, Asian schoolgirl, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> I see what you did there with did the you see, of your head. Did you see what I did? This is not a video <laughs> podcast. You can't see, see me saying absolutely yes. <laughs> then we have Gordon Liu, not related to Lucy Liu, as Johnny Moe. I, I personally call him Cato myself. Yeah. Uh, he's a head of Oren's personal army, the Crazy 88. Um, yeah, he, he's the one with the way Cato mask and he, he gets a nice little thing in the end there <laughs> where he gets like chopped off and falls into the pool. He takes a bath. Yeah, it takes a bath. Michael Parks as Earl McGraw, the great Michael Parks, uh, a Texas Ranger who investigates uh, the Wedding Chapel massacre. And this role here originated in the Robert Rodriguez movie from Dust Till Dawn continues in here and then it's reprised in both segments of the rodriguez tarantino uh grindhouse films yep michael parks is awesome passed away a couple years ago yeah unfortunately i'll give you one more there's plenty others but michael bowen as buck he's the uh, rapey coma pimp he's an orderly at the hospital who's just been pimping her out and raping her the bride while she's laying there in a coma and buck likes to what yeah yeah my name is buck i like to fuck <laughs> and he's got the most absolutely disgusting fucking little can of vasalube oh god with fucking hair it's so disgusting when he tosses it to that guy i'm like why are you even catching that thing let, let, let me ask you a straight up question so buck is like a nurse or orderly right and he works at a hospital what like self-respecting hospital would let a guy with a vehicle that's called the pussy wagon in in the tattoo and the tattoo that what did his tattoo say? Did it say fuck? It said fuck. Yeah. 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 So like, 
I, I just can't picture the, the, the administrator of the hospital not saying, hey, Buck, you know, can you possibly take your bright yellow and pink truck and not bring it here anymore? You know, the, some of the patients notice that it says pussy wagon on it. I guess <laughs> I've never seen it, but I guess if you see this on TNT, it is uh, digitally altered to party wagon. Party wagon. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, it is a party. Yeah, it's sure. an absolute party. Um, I actually have a continuity question, too, when we get to it <laughs> regarding oh, yeah. pussy wagon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, t- Quentin Tarantino owns the pussy wagon. That is a personal vehicle of his that apparently when this movie came out, he drove to like uh, premieres and to appearances. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty crazy. Um, and Michael Bowen, we, we kind of, you know, linking through the movies, Michael Bowen was in Jackie Brown as one of the, uh, the uh, ATF or federal uh, agents as yep. well. Um, and uh, yeah, he plays a real fucking ski ball in this. Now, Sean, real quick, even though Lloyd didn't mention him, do you recognize the gentleman that he, he, in, lack of better or more tasteful term rents the bride out to. Did you recognize that fellow? Is he Adam Sandler's buddy? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it yes, is. I did then. You tell by the eyes. You tell by the eyes. He is, he is uh, John, Jonathan Lofgren. And uh, if you, if you don't know who he is, he's in just about every Adam Sandler movie. Uh, if you want to recognize him immediately, he is the, the cross-eyed guy in the water boy who says, did you just make a joke, Bobby? Nah. <laughs> he, he plays a very disgusting client. Bobby Boucher. Bobby Boucher. <laughs> so we got a $30 million budget in opening weekend of $22.2 million. Now, this is his, his largest one. Uh, recall, Pulp was about 9.3, and Jackie Brown was right around there, too. Yeah. Uh, $70 million domestic. Not huge, but respectable. And $180.9 million worldwide yep and you got to factor in the fact that the budget is for both of the movies right so i, I think that's a complete budget for one and two you know what i i didn't check if that was a complete one and two budget or not all right we'll double check for the next episode yeah, yeah but well, if, if it was then it means you're making kind of double the money by splitting them in half part of the reason they split them in half and they didn't split this in half until four months before it came out july of 03 um, apparently, uh, uh, the scumbag there, uh, uh, yeah, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, I guess he always had a issue with telling his producers to make their movie shorter. And even though Tarantino was a moneymaker for him, he was like, you know, it'd be better idea to put these out in two parts. The reason Tarantino acquiesced to that is because he knew that if he, if, if you took both of these together and, and had almost a four hour movie, he knew if he put it out in one shot that they would want to trim it down more. And he said he would lose stuff like the anime sequence and stuff that he really cared about. He said he knew if they split it in two movies, he could get away with making them, you know, full length features and still, you know, you could put them together if you want and watch them. So it it was a choice on his part. And it's great because, you know, I think if if any of us out there as we're recording sat and watched the Justice League four hour (laughs) movie, you know, no matter how good Kill Bill is, you know, imagine going to see that in the theater for four fucking hours. It'd be tough. It would be tough. That was a good call to go to. Yeah. Split it in half, just like a baseball. Yep. Yeah. Split it in half, just like a baseball. Absolutely. So yeah, this thing starts off and, uh, and the bride is, is on a rampage immediately to, well, it starts off with showing you the, the massacre, you know, the ending of the massacre. And I kind of read uh, in one of the things I read while researching this, that it's really funny that when the bride goes on her revenge streak, they show all the violence graphically when it's her, you don't see what happened except for bill shooting her in the head, which I got to say, Every time I see it, when he shoots her in the head, it, it, it makes me jump because it's kind of mid sentence and it's just this like awful, like, you know, pop to the head and, you know, the blood shoots out of the back of her head. And it, it's black and white. So it makes it easier to take. It is. Yeah, that is absolutely it happens quite a bit in the film. 
Yeah. Yeah. Part of the reason of the black and white, especially when you get to the end is Tarantino was tributing, I guess a lot of Kung Fu movies and action movies back in the day would, when they'd go to um, like network television or television, they would, I think this is in other countries mostly. They would make them black and white so that the blood wasn't so much of a factor. Right. Tone down the violence. Tone down so. the violence because you know, you know, blood's only blood if it's red, not if it's right. black. And it, it actually does work. Yeah, they did that with pro wrestling too. You remember in the eighties? Yeah, Saturday night's main event. They would, you know, if anybody bladed, they would just go to black and white. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so Sean, she she shows up first to take on uh, Vernita Green, who who is the uh, who is uh, what was she uh, Copperhead? Copperhead. She yeah. Was, uh, yeah. Yeah. And they get into essentially this incredible uh, fight in the suburban house uh, and they pause long enough to, uh, to, to for the, her daughter to get off the bus. <laughs> Did you notice, Sean, that when uh, Vernita Green uh, pulls the gun out of the box of cereal? Did you notice the name of the cereal? Yeah, I, I don't. I oh, don't notice it. Yeah. Oh, it was Wheaties. No, <laughs> oh, the whole yeah, cereal. You're like, uh oh. Yeah, you see the cereal, and the cereal is titled what, Lloyd? Kaboom! Kaboom! Uh, <laughs> so she's hi- she's hiding a, a handgun inside of a, a you know a, a box of cereal uh, called Kaboom, which I'm surprised he didn't go fruit brute. Uh, it seems right. To be, you know, the he, third time, something he's hitting a, a lot. Wait, was um, there actually a Kaboom cereal? No, I'm that, not that no, I, I, I think that's, that's just the movie. Up. I think that's just the movie. Okay. But the it looks scene, just like Fruit Loops to me. The fight scene's great. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting about this fight scene that never occurred to me until after reading it, doing more research on this, is she fights uh, Vernita, and it's essentially a knife fight. She ends up killing her by throwing the knife through her heart. Then she goes to Japan to see uh, Hattori Hanzo. She makes Hattori, has Hattori Hanzo make this incredible blade, right? It'll, it'll cut God. She only kills one of her opponents with the blade throughout everything. He only kills Orinishi with the blade. <laughs> she kills Vernita with a knife. She kills, uh, well, we'll get into what happens in part two. This blade that's made to t- exact her revenge is only used against one opponent. <laughs> See, that, that, that was my question, the continuity issue, because Vernita Green was number two on the list. And when yep. she gets back into the pussy wagon, Orinishi's already crossed out. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah it, so I, no, that's right. That's correct. Yep. So, yeah, I didn't get like, where was the pussy wagon while she was away for a month, at least a month parked in the airport, yeah. uh, airport. <laughs> so, hill. Yeah. so no one went looking for Buck's pussy wagon when they found him murdered in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Things, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Sean's going the logical route. I yeah, get that's it. Yeah. That's I, know, I, get I should, probably but... complain about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we are talking about a movie. Remember Sean, that turns to a cartoon for 10 minutes. I get it. Yeah. No, I should suspend disbelief. But it's the pussy wagon. Come on. <laughs> it is the pussy wagon. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I was going to say maybe she had it painted, but no, it's still the pussy wagon when she pulls yeah. up to a, yeah. you know, how, how does the pussy wagon play? And that neighborhood too, like like you, you know some like nosy old fucking bitty looks out the window and goes, "I'm calling the police." <laughs> now Tarantino has said, and it, you know we're getting to the point where we could still do this, although we we kind of talked about the fact that relationships between him and Uma Thurman have been strained over something that happens uh, that we're going to get into in part two more. Um, in, in real life, they're they've had some issues, but Tarantino has said that he's always thought about doing a three. That would be essentially Vernita's daughter's journey to find the bride, which, you know, they have this great scene where she essentially kills Vernita in front of her little daughter and then has this speech about, well, if you're still feeling raw, come and find me. Um, and I was wondering, because I don't remember volume two, because I've only seen it once. 
maybe we shouldn't get into it here, but I was wondering if the little girl does come back eventually in, in volume two. No, in the movie, she does not. Okay. But, but he has said that it's always been a thought in his head to kind of do that at some point. Sean, would you be interested in seeing that? Or are you good with this being all? I'm good, but I see a logical next, you know, double feature here with Beatrix's daughter. Yep. Who is the same age or a little bit younger than witnessing it. And then she goes after Fernita's daughter. It just never ends. Yeah. You know, it's a vicious cycle of uh, revenge, revenge, violence. Absolutely. So she does, as we said, that ends. And then she essentially goes right over to Japan. Some interesting things are about when she goes to Okinawa, some interesting things uh, that I found when she, now Sean just said the word Beatrix, which we never hear in this film, right? Uh, spoiler alert. We'll say it here. Her name's Beatrix kiddo. Now earlier in the movie, Bill calls her kiddo. You think he's calling right. her kiddo, right? He's actually calling her by her last name. Now I had, uh, I had read uh, at some point a while ago before we were going to do this show. So I tested it. The scene where she goes to Okinawa and then goes to Japan, they show her boarding pass twice. Very quickly, uh, very quickly. Now, whenever they say her name in this movie, it's only a couple times it's beeped out. If you pause her boarding pass, her name's right on it. Beatrix yep. Kiddo is on the top right-hand corner. So I thought that was interesting that it was always there. So it, I have a question about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a thing. It's a unique thing for the film. It's kind of cool. But is it necessary to beep out her name? I mean, is that... I do think, you find a purpose for that? I think it's a, a stylized choice. It's a style, yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting. I think it's really interesting because you're almost like... you it's one of these movies where if you really think about it, you're following a character that you don't know the character's name. You're supposed to feel for this person. You're supposed to, you know, uh, like understand their plight and you don't even know their fucking name. You know, um, they did that. There was yeah. a movie a few years ago um, with Daniel Craig called layer cake, where his character's name is never said. And it's, it's part of the film. It's, you know, it's a whole thing in the film. And I think it's supposed to almost keep you, at arm's length from someone. And maybe I think because part two kind of becomes the more personal part, especially when you get to her finding bill that you're supposed to kind of, and, and you know, her daughter gets involved. I think you're supposed to get a little bit more comfortable with her at that point. Um, and this is just me thinking I can be totally fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I have another, a couple other questions along the same line, the nonlinear structure of this, you know, so seeing Bernita green first and then Oranishi second, does that do anything to you guys to, to make the movie better in any way? Uh, not to me. I, I think it's, it's just qu Tarantino loves fucking with time. He does timelines. Yeah. So that's, and that I think his little jab, the Oren Ishii situ, you know, battle was so much more fun, you know, it was more epic than uh, Vernita green, but there's no reason it couldn't have just been Vernita green first. And then if they happened in that order though, in reverse order, the way they actually happen, it would yeah. be so anticlimactic. Just yeah, killing Vernita. Yeah, exactly. Away that she did. And yeah, that's why they show the the less fantastic one first, which was actually filmed chronologically in order. So the film shows it out of order, but it was filmed in order. Yeah, the whole movie was filmed in sequence. Yeah, which is unusual because most movies don't do that. Right, they film this from you know the way the way that it actually you know went, and I wonder why they didn't make you know, just make Oranishi the second victim. That's right. I mean, I, I don't think that it really helped anything for me. Part of the reason, and maybe this is totally wrong. 
I think part of the reason she went after Oranishi first is because she's the biggest threat. She's the fucking leader of the Japanese Yakuza. She's right. the she's like a mob leader. Vernita Green is retired, you know, essentially is just like the suburban mom who obviously is still dangerous, but probably isn't doing anything anymore. You know, and if you think about it, when you get to the second movie, she goes after Bud again, retired. Um, you know, we, we get the idea that Daryl Hannah's character is still dangerous. But but, you know, this is she's a mob right. boss. And yeah. she and she also has to infiltrate this place and take on, you know, I don't know what is 88. The actual number she's got to fight. Fuck it. It I'm seems like it is. Yeah, it seems like it's, it's probably 88 people. Yeah, zero, zero now. Well, yeah. you know, on the other hand, you know, you don't just go into a sprint. You warm up first. Right. Yeah. She's been in a coma for four years. She needs a little warm up. She absolutely needs just a little go for the up. best right away. So. Absolutely. So I'm is just calling possible, that out a little bit. Is it, I don't is it think that was necessary. Possible Quentin meant to do for Nita Green first chronologically anyway, which is why she drove up in the pussy wagon mm-hmm. right from the it hospital. Makes more sense to me. It would make sense. Yeah. 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 I don't know. That's a question. I guess uh, I'll have to see if there's anything uh, out there saying, unfortunately, it won't be on the show, but maybe uh, as you're listening, you know, the answer and you could, uh, you could contact us at uh forgotten and let us know what's going on. All right, so she heads out to uh, to Okinawa to see Hatari Hanzo, uh, played by, of course, uh, Sonny Chiba, who is a uh, a pretty legendary grindhouse martial arts uh, uh, action star, uh, 70s and, and, and the such, commissions him to make a samurai sword. Now, Sean, you told me something a little bit earlier uh, about this movie and samurai swords. A little bit of a weird story, but why don't you tell us the story? Yeah, so, um, you know, this came out in 03. And, uh, you know, eBay was not quite as big as it is now, but it was around. And soon, you know, I would say a couple of days after I saw this movie, went to eBay and uh, purchased a set of samurai swords, the katana wow. blade. Yeah. And still have them today. They're cheap pieces of shit, but <laughs> they are still technically swords. But yeah, so this uh, this was a driving inspiration for me to purchase a weapon how much time in like around oh three oh four did you spend in front of a mirror like unsheathing it you know <laughs> like you know like doing moves with it anything more time than i'll admit to okay that's yeah. fine all right yeah that's fine just that, as long as we know that's sure. yeah Maybe that's, not have happened. that's Shawnee Mac uh, PMPK pre-marriage pre-kids. So you know what? You know, it goes and then it goes <laughs> and then it goes. You, you the want, only sword I have is a plastic sword I used in a uh, Jon Snow costume. I have a light up lightsaber. So it, not a sword per se, a laser sword. Okay. <laughs> a weapon for more civilized. That's right. Age. That's right. <laughs> Did you guys like the little comedic uh, bit between Hanzo and his uh, assistant? Uh, oh, yeah. You know, because it's, it's essentially these two guys that have been working together forever in this little sushi bar. Although when it comes right down to it, obviously, Hattori Hanzo is a retired weaponsmith. And this guy seems to be in on it, too. But like they have this great little chemistry that's like a uh, like a Sam and Diane chemistry that I could almost picture like a, a sitcom being based around, you know. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that could be a great sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. I like the whole bit. I will say uh, one of the things that kind of puzzled me a little bit about their whole bit was not puzzled me, but, and it's kind of refreshing is normally in a movie like this, where she goes to the reluctant weaponsmith and says, make me a weapon. It would take a lot of convincing and he'd tell her to go away 10 times. As soon as he deduces that it's to go against bill, he immediately says, okay, he hasn't made a weapon in 28 years. He obviously has some kind of problem. It kind of makes you wonder if Bill fucked him over as well, 
or, you know, maybe he made weapons for Bill and feels bad about it. So I like the fact, like any good script or good movie or good comic book, there's a little bit of untold backstory with Hikari yeah. Hanzo. And you only get him for like a 10 minute period in the movie. Um, but his name is kind of like part of Tarantino verse legend now, you know? Yeah. Um, you get the great moment at the end when she fights Orinishi and uh, delivers the death blow and Orinishi's last words are that was a Hatari Hanzo story. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's right. It's so great. This is my yeah, favorite she, scene in the movie. She skull kept her. This the the sword scene? No, uh, no the uh the the whole thing in the the sushi. Yeah. The Hatari Hanzo. That's good. It's stuff. my favorite scene probably in the whole movie. I love the end, but that goes on a little, you know, some of the violence is a, a little crazy. Oh yeah. It's all crazy, but it, you know, after 10, 15 minutes, you're like, okay, all right, let's move on a little bit here. But no, that whole scene in the, in the sushi place with Atari Hanzo and it's a slapstick comedy and he's talking to her, trying to get her to teach her, you know, right, Japanese, a couple words and, of Japanese. Yeah. And she's playing dumb. Like she doesn't know it. And it's, you know, she does. And then when she says, I came here to, see a man you know i've never met him and says his name and he, he looks up it gets dead serious and it's just great it's a great scene to me yeah just yeah. how it, it it switches tone so quickly <clears throat> this entire movie you know is is uma thurman you know the bride character she's on this this streak of just like bullet focused vengeance right and every time you see her she's it's she's harsh She's harsh, you know what I mean? Because because of her mission. That scene, because she's kind of playing a character at first, because she's trying to trick him a little bit, is the only time that she comes across as cute. Like she she looks cute. You know, Numa Thurman is an attractive woman, but if you pay attention to that scene, she's bubbly and airy because I, she's you, you notice that? I totally agree with you. Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. She she's an attractive woman, but she's like pretty and cute in this scene which is not the way she's portrayed at any other time in the movie right she's she's so imposing in the rest of the movie the scene at yeah. the end when she uh, and, it, and this goes back to the, some of the tarantino isms is when she opens the trunk on sophie and she's wearing the motorcycle helmet and it's kind of filmed from sophie's perspective because it's the tarantino trunk scene that we knew we were going to get but like she's almost like darth vader in that scene yeah the helmet she's just this imposing character and she's telling her you know, like this is going to hurt you, you know? So like you get that and you get the version that you see killing Vernita and you get the version you see in the fight in the house of blue leaves and none of them equal the kind of bubbly hair up version you get in the Hatari Hanzo scene. I agree, Sean, it, it, it might not be my favorite scene in the movie. It's absolutely up there. It's absolutely up there. It's a good one. Yeah. And um, I guess her, her, uh, stunt double Zoe bell, I believe yeah. her name is. She yeah. really did. Uh, split that baseball yes yeah so he throws a baseball at her uh when he's i guess testing her she uses the one of the hatari hanzo swords not the one that's made for her she cuts it right in half and uh yeah zoe bell apparently and zoe bell on her own ended up becoming kind of a b-movie star and one of the stars of one of tarantino's uh next films death proof mm -hmm. which we'll be covering with scary larry dwyer so yeah so interesting stuff we get her leaving ok okinawa and heading towards tokyo and now we jump into the origin of her next target which is orinishi e and half chinese half japanese uh leader of the yakuza and the movie goes into a anime style cartoon um it was produced by a uh a, a company called production ig which apparently is very big for I, i'm not an anime guy but they made stuff like ghost in the shell 
this sequence was actually directed by someone totally different. It was directed by a guy named Kazuto Nakazada. Um, so it's so odd. Like, do you, do you guys like the fact, would you have rather had this be a film scene or you like it better with the fact that they did like a good, maybe eight minute chunk of animation, Sean? It's a tough call. I, I like the animation and I, I, I think it um, it does add a little something. It's just, again, it's, it's Quentin being creative and, and going, you know, taking a risk putting uh, animation in the middle of the movie like that. I think it works. I could see how some people might not like it, but, and it's absolutely perfect for what's going on and the story it's trying to tell too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Lloyd, what do you feel about that scene? Yeah, I do. I do like it. I actually thought about this because, excuse me, I sort of anticipated this question. Is this anime scene really needed? You know, the whole movie itself is basically an homage to different styles of movies, you know, whether it's uh, grindhouse cinema, martial arts films, uh, black boys, black exploitation, spaghetti westerns. Why not throw anime in there? You know, and, and it, it told a story that was much probably cheaper to do that way than than with uh, live action. And it also foreshadows a lot of the bloody scenes that we're going to see the spurting blood geysers, you know in the uh, Oranishi battle. So yeah. yeah, I think it fits in uh, again, no problem with that. Yeah. Cause essentially the house of blue leaves sequence is just a filmed anime sequence. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like they, they took an ant, like what, what should have been an anime sequence and, and use live action. Yeah. Right. I got one thing to say about house of blue leaves. Yeah. If you, if you abbreviate that, which I did many times in my notes, it's hobble. Oh, is it really? She fucking hobbles everybody in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, we're getting there anyway. The House of Blue Leaves sequence took eight weeks to film. Yes. That's as long as Pulp Fiction took totally. <laughs> so <laughs> that one sequence took as long as, as Pulp Fiction Which I did. believe was six weeks longer than they planned for. Yeah. Right. It was over. Lloyd, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was wondering if... if if we had gotten to the point of when um, Daryl Hannah comes in or, or is that let's roll back, roll, go ahead. What do you, what do you, what do you got with Daryl Hannah? So uh, there's a couple things that stood out to me in that. First of all, so when, when Daryl Hannah comes in into the hospital, cause she's in a coma, right. And she comes in and she's whistling a tune, by the way, the tune is uh, the theme from twisted nerve, a movie that, a Bernard Herman did the music for. Now you can go ahead and listen to a former Planet Comics uh, episode where we talked about the day the earth stood still. And that music is also by Bernard Herman. Um, but as she's walking in, she's wearing this white coat. And I guess I'm, I just never noticed before, but all this, all the piping, the bell, everything, it's all just, it's drawn on there. Is it really? Did you see that? No. It's literally drawn. She's wearing like a white leathery plasticky coat or something. And all the stitching, the bell, everything that's black on that coat is just drawn on. Well, what I felt was weird about that scene. Where my inspiration came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I felt was so weird about that scene when she decides to go and change into the nurse costume and, and the Daryl Hannah character um, has an eye patch and she puts on that like red cross medical eye patch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just thought like she's trying to, and I get it again, it's a movie she's trying to blend in, but I'm pretty sure anybody that works at the hospital would go, I've never seen the six foot fucking two long blonde haired, like nurse with the fucking eye patch with a cross on it before. I'm right. pretty sure people would jump at that. Every time I ever like see a, a movie pussy wagon outside. Yeah. I, I always, I always think this, maybe you guys can, can, uh, can equate this with me or, or feel this way. Uh, every time I see a movie 
where people take cover like in like clothes of, of like a, like as hotel workers or something. I always want to see someone in the movie go, I don't know who you are. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I've been working here 15 years. I've never seen you. That never yep. fucking happens in a movie. <laughs> they just, they put on like the, the jacket as a, as a waiter, grab a tray and then they belong. It's like, I'm going to try this. I guarantee if I try this, some dude's going to go, who the fuck are you? <laughs> Or so, better yet, a cop when they dress yeah. up like cops and they yes. just somehow fit in. <laughs> just fit right in. They work with. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of cops in each town, but I'm pretty sure you know who all the other cops are. They probably even make it a point. Here, these are the other cops. Get get used to them. You know, no, you can just grab a tray, grab a gun, and you're fucking. You work there now. <laughs> um, all right. So yeah. So I have a question about Daryl Hannah too, because yeah. we've kind of we've kind of talked about it a little bit, and I do want to ask this question. Am I the only one here? I just never have really found her to be super attractive. And I know I probably should. Sean, you're the same. I'm the same. Yeah. Even in Splash. Yeah. Probably her cutest. I don't know. I just wasn't into it. Never really did it. Yeah, for well, she's got, I, she, I think she's fine, but maybe not my type, but she's got a very, like maybe a masculine jawline. You yeah. Know, I, she, I, she's a big, looks like a strong, big woman. I don't know. She looks, she looks like a, it's like a, a wrestler of, of some of some kind. Oh, no, but I there's plenty of wrestlers. I like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I got a couple of those too. All right. I got a lot of I got a lot of kinks here. A couple <laughs> yeah, more things about show. that Daryl Hannah scene. Yep. You know, she's there to deliver like a lethal injection, and then she gets a call from Bill. No, no, no. We're not going to do that. That's not an honorable death. Well, why the fuck did you send her there? Yeah. I don't understand why she's yeah. there if she's just going to abort that because of this, uh, you know, dishonorable. Death and lucky thing. for him, he got, she took all that time to get in the character right. and get in costume. Right. Yeah. Might have been, been dead late. already. Yeah. If she wasn't so dedicated to trying to, to slip into the uh, to the role. When she wakes up from the coma, we sort of see this random mosquito land on her. Yeah. Right. And, and bite her. And then all of a sudden she wakes up violently and she's out of her coma. Now that's reminiscent of Pulp Fiction, although very little needle, yeah. very big needle in Pulp Fiction. Same reaction. I thought that was pretty clever. Yeah, I didn't oh, put that together. Like, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. Now, on the last episode when we talked about Jackie Brown, we talked about a little bit about uh, Tarantino's fascination with Bridget Fonda's toes, right? Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> he takes it to another level here yeah, because there, there is a good what seems to be two minute long sequence that involves what I can only describe. Now, again, Uma Thurman, beautiful woman, but I can only describe as Uma Thurman's finger length toes. <laughs> she yeah. has got some seriously long fucking toes. Uh -huh. And, you know, I get it. The idea behind the scene is that she's trying her, her legs are atrophied. Only part of her body that is atrophied, by the way, but her legs are atrophied. She's trying to wiggle her toes and it takes, what, 16 hours to get to moving her legs. But it's just these long shots of her toes. But very um, well kept for those four years. So yeah. must have had pedicures like all the time. Let's be honest. Buck may have been doing some horrible stuff, but he was also <laughs> keeping her very clean. <laughs> it might it, it might have been for his own nefarious yeah, you reasons. You don't want those toenails scratching you. Forget that. that that's why uh, my wife won't watch the movie anymore because she is the opposite of a foot person. Yeah. And that scene, if you're not a foot person, you cannot get through it more than once. Yeah. And there's so many of them, actually, in this movie. Yeah. One of my notes is uh, uh, further on, Sophie Fatale has a good foot scene. Her feet are much nicer than Uma Thurman's. No offense, Uma. <laughs> but better feet. Lucy Liu kicks off her shoes to jump on the table yep. to chop uh, Boss Tanaka's head off as well. Then you got the five, six, seven, eights. Yeah, they're barefoot when they're playing. 
Woohoo, woohoo, hoo. Um, <laughs> I like that band. I yeah, they're really good. He apparently was uh, scouting locations in Japan, and someone he ran into, uh, I didn't, I don't remember who it was, had a tape of theirs. And he some liked store, it. Some store. Some he was store. In. And, and yeah. apparently he wanted it so bad that he had to buy the personal copy from that person. And then he had to like find them and get them to be in the movie, which I'm sure they had no problem with. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I do want to point out. Uh, damn it. I lost something again. I lost my head again. Hold on. It was Uma Thurman's feet too. Fuck. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight. No, it was, Uma, it was Uma Thurman's feet. Thurman's feet. It was Buck. Uma Thurman's Wiggle feet. Wiggle her toes. Oh, oh, okay. So something else I wanted to point out that was kind of a nice little callback to earlier in the movie. When Michael Parks, the, the sheriff character, goes to see her body, they think she's dead. The way he realizes she's not dead is she spits. Just randomly spits. Yeah. Later on, when Buck is pimping her out, he tells the guy to watch out. This one's a spitter. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So I thought it was very interesting to wonder if maybe like for the last four years, the only thing she does like bodily wise is just spit in the air. Um, That's funny. Yeah. Uh, it's so, a good scene with that Michael Parks too, with all the different sunglasses, uh, sunglasses on his dashboard, all yeah. the exact same style. Yeah. Maybe a yeah. slightly different shade. He's just got a bunch of different shades of, of cop glasses across, yeah, across the bottom. Awesome. We, we get to Japan. Um, I love the plane sequences because they're so cheesy looking. Um, and the scene yeah. Sean mentioned in the trailer, which was I do very well remember the first shot in the trailer is her landing in, in Tokyo. Yeah, that is actually a miniature that they ended up getting from one of the um, the Toho uh, Godzilla films. It was a film called it was the most current one to that point. It was called Giant Monsters All Out Attack. And that was one of the Tokyo sets. They got it from that production company and used it for like that one scene. Uh, with all the billboard advertisements up everywhere too. Apparently, apparently the same stuff. Now, when she lands, Lloyd, what do we see an advertisement for that goes along with uh, Tarantino-isms? At that point, I believe maybe that one's the Red Apple. Red Apple cigarettes, yes, which keep popping up all throughout. we uh, We get the Go Juice. We get Red Apple cigarettes. I think that's it for product placement. I think that's it. I think that's it as well. Um, So this leads into the house of blue leaves, which is essentially the last 25 minutes where the bride takes on the crazy 88 uh, go, go, and also takes on uh, Oranishi E. Um, it, it, you can't describe much more than it's just fucking crazy action. And, uh, and I look in bloodbath. It's a bloodbath yeah. and I do love it, but I do agree with Sean that it, it it's long. It's certainly long, you know, and I, I don't, I don't wish it to be any shorter, but if it was a little bit shorter, I don't think I would miss out on anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's so many, you know, nameless henchmen. Yeah. The crazy 88s. They probably could done with the, you know, five minutes out of that. And it's so so when you watch it, at least the first time, you know, she fights a a few of the minions and then she fights Gogo and you think, all right, great. Now she's got the Oren. And then a whole legion of more people come in. I mean, mean, did you, did you guys think that too? Like the next, the final battles coming up? Oh yeah. 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 You figure, you figure she kills 20 people. You know, you figure, uh, go, go is like the, 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 the lower boss level, you know, and I love the fight they have. I love the way go, go is using that fucking, whatever the fuck that thing is. That mace, the mace thing on a chain, mace on a chain, swinging it around, kicking it at her, doing it around her neck and doing it around her neck. I mean that she's, if that was her actually doing those stunts, uh, it was great. It was How do you even great. train that? How do you train to control that weapon? I'm telling you, I don't know, but I'm telling you that if I was like in a fight 
and someone pulled that weapon out and started doing that kind of shit with it, I would run as far as far, oh, yeah. as fast as I could, especially if she hit that button and it suddenly became like a saw blade. Like, fuck right? that thing. Right? Holy yeah, fuck it's, that thing. It's like Phantasm on steroids. Yeah. yeah. The sphere from Phantasm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, did you notice too, that there's a point where she's, I think after that big fight, the bride is walking across that, that Zen garden, you know, under the glass. Yes. And there's a shot looking up through the glass at her. Did you see what was on the bottom of the soles of her shoes? I, I read this afterwards. I didn't notice it. I noticed it. And I'm like, I paused it. Like I saw something there. I paused it. It says, fuck you. The letter U on the bottom of each of her shoes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I read that and I did not notice that. I'll have to, I'll have to catch it on the next viewing, but I, I laughed at that. Um, what do you guys think of the, the three, essentially three different styles we get in the crazy eight, eight fight. We get normal in color bloodbath. Then we go black and white for a little while. And yeah. then we go to that blue silhouette. Do you guys like that? Sean, how do you feel about that? I, you know, stylistically, the blue silhouette was cool, but I don't understand why she, the, the, it was the woman who runs the place, like turns the lights off and then turns them back on like a couple minutes later. Anyway, like I, it, the whole thing was kind of weird to me. Why, why she did that, what the purpose was, um, other than it looked fucking cool. I'll give her yeah. that. It, it was very stylish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I think it went color black and white, and as soon as color came back, then the lights went out. Yeah, yeah. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you guys about, and it's one of my favorite things in this film, is, uh, and we talk about the soundtracks and everyone, and apparently everything in this film is from another film soundtrack. Do you guys like, because I love it, do you like the fact that every time she encounters one of her victims and or <laughs> targets, yeah. that you get that incredible, like, first 15 seconds of the Ironsides theme song? you guys like that as well it's perfect yeah yeah it's perfect you you knew what was going on as soon as you heard that you know you also got like maybe the close-up of her eyes the close-up of her eyes would turn like red or or whatever um i I think i think that's fucking great i love the uh I, i guess i would call it the reservoir dogs um walk when the crazy 88s came in or yeah crazy or whatever they are and they played that uh what the heck's the name of that song Bum, bum, bum. When oh. they all come in, great soundtrack, great, great song, and that just reminded me of Reservoir Dogs. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, we we end up with the Oranishi fight again. I've never timed this, but apparently, when Oranishi makes a comment about five minutes, yeah, she makes some kind of comment about five minutes from the second that she steps forward and they fight. It's five minutes to Oranishi gets her uh, her scalp cut off. Do you guys like the fact that essentially, you know, the fight? doesn't go on too long and it's it's kind of over it not just doesn't go on too long but it's brutal and it kind of ends like almost anticlimactically like you know you're waiting on this big moment where the bride cuts her arms off cuts her in half throws her into a fire pit and it's essentially you know she gets a couple good licks on the bride cuts her across the back pretty badly they end up on opposite sides of this fence they run towards each other and you don't even really see what happens. It's just like motion. And then we see Oranishi's scalp fly off, mm-hmm. you know, and then we get, we get the line that was a Hatari Hanzo. You see your brain. That was a big trope for a while in movies where like, you know, the, the one person would get killed, but not realize yeah. it, you know, equilibrium. If you've ever seen that, did it, uh, they, they've done it several times. Do you guys like the fact that this wasn't as drawn out of a fight as you might've expected it to be because we already got 20 minutes of action. I remember the the first time I watched it, I think that was sort of anticlimactic to me. I was like, 
that's it. You know, Orenishi and, you know, we get a, a little bit of action out in the snow there, the very fake looking snow. And, um, yeah, I was a little, I, I know the first time I was a little upset about it and that's what made me not really want to go back to the, to the movie so much, but I think rewatching it this time, I don't mind that. Yeah. I, we had so much action prior to that. I feel like that's okay. And during, before that fight, you actually see um, the bride before they're kind of like facing off against each other. She's shaky. You can literally okay. see her shaking the only time in the movie where she's not like a hundred percent confident. Yeah. Right. Cause Sean, she knows that Oren is, is at least her equal, if not better. Absolutely. I mean, you don't rise to the level in the, the underworld that, that she has without being a badass. So to me, that last scene, I'm okay with it being as short as it was. The only problem I might have would be Oren Ishii was, was such a killer, had such a great backstory and was self-made and attained this level to be the boss of the Yakuza, an American Japanese or a Japanese Chinese American, like defied all the odds. And that's how she goes out five minutes. First of all, hiding behind the crazy 88s. Yeah. And then they get killed. And then she goes out five minutes later. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. The bride should win, but eh, you know, maybe she should have lasted a little bit longer. You know, that's a good, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Being the leader of the Yakuza, you would expect more. Kind of like you said about the bride being shaky going up against her. Maybe Oranishi is like, fuck, I know she could beat me too. True. You know what I mean? And I'm going to let, I'm, let's, 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 let's weaken her up a little bit. You know, there's no, there, I don't think anybody's looking for a challenge here. They're looking for, let, let's let them beat each other out. And then maybe I'll, maybe I'll be able to beat her at that point easily. Doesn't work out for her. Now we have mentioned a couple of times. We didn't really get too far into it that, when Bill does shoot her in the beginning, she says the, the baby is yours. You're assuming this whole movie that the baby has died. When she wakes up from her, it's, it's sad, actually. When she wakes up from her coma, she reaches for her stomach. And even though it's been four years to her, it's been a, a, an hour. She realizes the baby isn't there and she freaks the fuck out. So this movie ends essentially with Bill talking to the now armless Sophie Fatale and probably more than armless because <laughs> They kind of make a point of saying like what what she's done to you. But she also says, did you say Bill says, did you say anything to her about her daughter? You know, her child still being alive. Movie ends right there. So she's on this on this path of vengeance, not even knowing that apparently Bill has her kid. Right. That will get into Kill Bill Volume 2 with our special guest from the Nomcast, Andrew Morgan, ForgottenEntertainment.com family, part of that. Um, so let's let's get into some Tarantino isms here, Lloyd. Some of the stuff that maybe you noticed, maybe Sean noticed that might link into some of the other films. So here's what I got. We've got the fourth trunk scene, basically the bride looking down, like you said, in her Darth Vader helmet down at Sophie Fatale in the trunk. Uh, the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, bare feet scene. We've already talked so much about that. Uh, the third corpse point of view scene, which is in the wedding. Yep. You're looking down at the corpse. Um, the third tracking shot. So there's a shot when they're in the house of blue leaves where you're following the bride walking to the bathroom. And then you get the Charlie Brown, interesting Charlie <laughs> Brown character. Uh, and the owner walking up to a private room. And then we see Sophie Fatale coming down the stairs. That was all one shot that took several takes to get it, but it, it's all one continuous shot. And it, it's pretty unique to, to see that stuff. And you get the second, what they call God's eye point of view, where you got a scene looking down from above. There's a couple of those. There's uh, the second map scene 
So the plane flying over the map, like you talked about before. Yep. Another dancing scene, the five, six, seven, eights are doing a lot of dancing. Uh, the black and white suit that you mentioned, um, Bud is wearing in the crazy 88s. Uh, and then more bathroom scenes. There's a lot of, a lot of bathroom scenes for Tarantino. The second time Uma Thurman did don't be a square and outlined it. And then I guess the only other thing I would say is another samurai sword. We had, we had one in uh, Pulp Fiction. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Sean, anything, anything you got uh, besides that? No, my big one was the uh, don't don't be a square, and then you know that would make us square the way she outlined. That would make yeah, us square. That would make <laughs> us square. <laughs> um, no, I mean outside of that, I think Lloyd kind of nailed it. I mean, if I if I were to watch it again right now, I'd probably find something new that I missed. Yeah, a couple things. But it's Tarantino. I mean, he's 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 going to call back to his own stuff all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Which is fine. Which is fine. You know, I have no problem with that. Something that's not from the Tarantino universe. uh, That's a a nice callback or tribute is as Lloyd is wearing tonight. The the bride's track suit, uh, the motorcycle suit is uh, is from Game of Death, essentially with Bruce Lee. Um, the, uh, the final Bruce Lee film where if you've ever seen, he fights Kareem Abdul-Jabbar he, and he, and it's, it's a similar plot line too. He's going through multiple, uh, like a gauntlet to, per se, to get to a big boss. Um, and that's kind of what she's doing here. Now, this was never said by Tarantino. This was said by uh, David Carradine multiple times in interviews after the film came out. But if you think about it, it makes sense. So if you go to the Orinishi animated sequence, Right. Um, and the Yakuza boss is in charge and has her family killed. The guy that does the killing and sets her apartment on fire appears to be in, in the anime, a white person. David Carradine claims that was Bill, that Bill was like the assassin for that. And now, does it make sense that she would go work for him? Who knows with these fucked up people? But I, I think that's if that is true, I think that's an interesting little bit. Because yeah. they, they kind of do make it look like he's got brown hair. You know, he, he might look a little more Western than than the other characters. And uh, and I and that's just something that Tar- that Carradine says, not Tarantino. That's a guy who actually killed her father too. Uh, killed her father and sets the apartment on fire. apartment on fire. So I don't know why. I mean, and I could see to a point if it was just the boss that killed her father, killed her mother. She, as she goes up, gets in with this guy, the guy with the long hair. Then he helps her get to him. The boss isn't the one that killed her father, so I don't see why she would she she'd want to kill that guy, not not associate with him. I agree. I agree. I just wanted to throw it out there because it was something Carradine said. It wasn't like a fan theory. Now again, him Maybe saying it's his pipe dream. Right. Well, exactly. He saw Kung Fu. He didn't know what he was. Thinking. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Look, he, self auto. Yeah. Let's be honest. This is a guy that jerked off to death. So <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe he didn't. Hey, know. would you be so lucky? Yeah. I, hey, you know what? <laughs> Manster, we got some. Do we have some box office for this one? Yeah, we do. Yeah. When I said box, I made a, a square, by the way. No lines came yeah. up, though. A square office. Yeah. Oh, by the, before we go into box office, let's just mention this is the first of three films in a row. No Academy Award nominations. No Academy Award nominations. And we only talked about this in the first episode. And I do want to just point this out because I find this interesting. Uh, we kind of talked in the Reservoir Dogs episode about like his well-known use of the N-word and his overuse of it. Kill Bill one and Kill Bill two are the only two movies in his entire uh, lexicon, whatever you want to call it. No use of those word of that word at all. So I just wanted to mention that because I think it's interesting trivia fact. So not even cinematography, huh? Nope. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. Nada. 
All right. So the weekend of October 10th, 2003, Kill Bill did come in number one that week at 22 million. Uh, at number five was Out of Time. Oh, Denzel Washington. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't think I've ever seen that. Number four, Intolerable Cruelty. Mm. Number three, Good Boy. Number two, School of Rock. There we go. In the second said. week, second week of School of Rock. And number one, like I said, Kill Bill. Uh, for the year, Kill Bill came in at number 40. Um, wow. School of Rock for the year beat it at number 36. Um, I'm going to give you the top 10 that year because it's a pretty good top 10. Cheaper by the Dozen, number 10. Number nine, The Matrix Revolutions. Number eight, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Underrated. <laughs> Number seven, Elf. Awesome James Caan movie. Number six, X2, X-Men United. Oh, yeah, you said it's a James Caan movie. Yeah, James Caan movie. <laughs> that was a James Caan vehicle. Uh, you remember. Uh, yeah, I was waiting you know, for somebody to yeah. say something. Elf, uh, Elf, a really good Mary Steenburgen <laughs> film. Uh, number five, Bruce Almighty. Can I tell you that Mary Steenburgen also fills a niche I have, like a, like something going on with me? All right, go yeah. ahead. Keep going. Yeah. No, you've talked about her before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, number four, The Matrix Reloaded. That's right. Number three, my... Absolute least favorite franchise, as John knows, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean, mm. Curse of the Black Pearl. Was that the second one? First. That I was the first no one. Okay. It's the only one I saw. Uh, number two, Finding Nemo. Overrated. Never got, like, I like Pixar like movies. That, huh? Overrated. So overrated. Okay. <laughs> and number one, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. I never right. saw it. No, you never saw the Lord of the Rings films? No, no, okay, I'm kidding. All right. All right. No, no, nearly, I never saw the eight hour, hour movie. Eight hour extended cuts. I didn't I'll tell you a couple that Kill Bill did beat that year. All right. Uh, came in just ahead of the, oh God, is it a Disney movie? Holes? Yes. Yeah. Sh Shia LaBeouf. That's yeah. a good movie. That's actually That's a good, good movie. movie. I enjoy that movie. Uh, it came ahead of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> the movie The movie that made Sean Connery retire. <laughs> <laughs> And it came in ahead of Bad Santa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bad Santa is one of those ones that was it was amusing when I saw it once and never really went back to it. Yeah, it doesn't right. hold up. Yeah. It hold up. I don't think it's like Elf, up. apparently. Yeah. Which oh, still has legs. Up. Sorry. Elf holds up. Elf does have legs. Elf does have legs. All right. <laughs> so uh, let's get into our ratings for uh, for Kill Bill uh, here on uh, on the QT. We have a, a zero through five scale quarter and half scale are usable. We'll go to our guest, Shawnee Mac first tonight. Whoa, look at that. I'm, I'm changing up a little bit. Sean scale of zero to five. What would you give 2003's Kill Bill volume one? Zero to five samurai swords? Or yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll go, samurai, we'll go samurai with samurai swords. swords. Okay. okay, so I liked it when it came out. <clears throat> when it's on, I have to stop and watch it. And I was glad I rewatched it this week. So it's something that every time, even though I know what's going to happen, I still love watching it unfold. Um, the the ending and then, you know, the the scene in the, the sushi place in Okinawa more so than the rest of the movie. But I could sit through this movie, you know, any day of the week, twice on Sunday. It's a good movie. I will say that, <laughs> and I know I'm just going to continue talking about this. The uh, That's what you're here for, man. Watching, yeah. Hey, that's why I got a microphone. So I watched it this week and when it ended, I, I said, and not just to myself out loud, that's such a fucking badass movie. <laughs> yeah. 
and we're not even to part two yet. You know, mm-hmm. um, I put it up there with with my other one of my all time favorite badass movies, Robert Rodriguez. Interestingly enough, the connection Desperado, absolutely just violence for ninety minutes, fights and, and stabbings and just shootings, and I love it. I you know to get amped up, I'll watch Desperado. I'll watch this movie. Um, I put it on that level, and I give it uh, four and a quarter. Four and a quarter. Sword. All right, I'll go second. Uh, first two uh, gave him fives, right? Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and uh, pretty pretty good score for Jackie Brown as well. I can't remember my number right off the top of my head. Four. Four. Okay. Because um, I really do enjoy that movie. We talked about it. It's underrated, like Terminator 3. Boy, Sean said everything Sean said, I, I agree with. When I did have cable, this would always be on, and I'd watch it always. Um, I always seem to have come in at the House of Blue Leaves. Maybe that's partially because that's 90% of the movie. <laughs> it's most of the movie. It's most of the movie, but it always seemed to be there. And I also can tell you, we mentioned it earlier, I don't watch two as much as one, but one seemed to be on TV a lot more. You know, I think it's a little shorter. Maybe that's part of the reason. I don't know, but I do. I, I love how different this is. I love combination and mashup of different uh, genres. I, I just love everything. Uh, I think Uma Thurman's great in this thing. Uh, I'm going to go four and a half. This is, this is a four and a half. It's not perfect. There are some things that I can see again. Like I said, as much as I love it, you could probably trim house of blue leaves down a little bit, maybe have another couple of, uh, of scenes, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit more Hatari Hanzo. Again, I want a sitcom with these two guys. So <laughs> maybe 10 more minutes of the movie of those, their relationship and her spending a month there, which they say, you know, and they like kill maybe 13 less crazy 88s, you know, yeah, I might be okay with that. Lloyd, what do you give it? Boy, you guys, you guys pretty much said all, all the points that I wanted to say. Um, you know, it's a great stylish revenge thriller. He, he leaves his uh, excessively bloody mark on it. It's a nice homage to several other genres. Um, I'm going to go with Shawnee Mac. I, I, I go with the 4.25. 4.25. All right. So this thing is above four across the boards. Yep. All right. So that's impressive. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, we'll have you on Pine of Comics again very soon. Uh, why don't you tell everybody out there where they could find your writing? Sure. Occasionally you can find it on Horror News Network. That's horrornewsnetwork.net. Uh, all things horror, news, reviews, everything. Go there. It's your one-stop shop. And uh, check out Connecticut Cold Classics while you're there. That's right. Connecticut Cold Classics, our buddy Scary Larry. Great time. All right. So before we go real quick, uh, we are part of the forgotten entertainment.com family forgotten entertainment uh, has some great shows. Uh, so I want to just point some of these out for you. If you want to add some podcasts to your podcast player, uh, forgotten cinema, Mike and Mike talk about movies that have been forgotten by, uh, by the general audience. Next week's uh, guest on the Kill Bill Volume 2 episode is Andrew Morgan. Andrew has the Nomcast, which is a fantastic show uh, where he talks about Netflix original movies, a.k.a. Nom. You get what he did there. Also, uh, cracking one open, Mike Butler, one of the mics from Forgotten Cinema, and his fiance Elise. They talk about craft brews and pop culture. Uh, and I'll give one more. Uh, because I've been listening to this one lately. Um, yet another Star Wars podcast. Colleen Anders, I uh, I can't remember the last gentleman's name. I apologize, but they're going through the 11 films in the Star Wars canon. As of recording, they just put out their Return of the Jedi episode. So check all those shows out and, uh, and come back next week for Kill Bill Volume 2. So for On the QT, I'm John. I'm Lloyd. And we will see you in the movies. Very good.